This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Kazlin Fields of Google and Jonathan Ripley of NetApp join us to talk about Kubernetes, GKE, and NetApp Astra Trident. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipor. Zipor. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio and with me today I have Kazlin Fields, formerly from NetApp, now from Google, to here to talk to us about all things Kubernetes and keynotes and conferences and all those things. So uh, Kazlin, what specifically are you doing at Google and how do we reach you? Hello. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be back. I've been on here once before, right? At least. <laughs> at least. Um, so these days I'm a developer advocate here at Google Cloud, where I focus on Google Kubernetes Engine as well as open source Kubernetes. I'm a member of the special interest group for contributor experience in the open source project. Um, and I, you know, I kind of keynoted KubeCon. So, you know, just kind of keynoted cool. it. Yeah, whatever. No, no, big, no bigs. No bigs. No big deal. <laughs> so how, how do I reach you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter, very active on Twitter, uh, at Kaslin Fields. And I also have my own blog site, kaslin.rocks. And I have a mailing list on that, which I have not been great about, but I'm working on fixing all of that. So if you want to follow the mailing list, you can follow my work there. And uh, I think there's also an email address associated with that that you can contact me at. And LinkedIn is good, too. <laughs> All right, excellent. Um, so the the dot rocks domain is coveted, I would imagine, by geologists everywhere. So I'm I'm happy that you were able to to corral that. Yeah, it's pretty great. I had no idea that existed, but then I saw it and I had to have it. Like that geologist at like you know random university was like drats. So close. Hey, Kaslin, aren't you an ambassador? Yeah, uh, the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which I described earlier. I'm an ambassador of that organization, which basically means that I'm a community member and I was having a lot of fun explaining things to people and trying to help people out with their questions. And then the CNCF was like, hey, you want a title so that people know that we like your explanations of things? It's <laughs> basically how I look at it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a, an ambassador of the CNCF now. <laughs> That's super awesome. So how do you how do you do that? Like, what what do you have to do to become an ambassador? Do they just pick you, or is there like an application process? Yeah, there's an application process. You can basically fill out this application that um, in it you put uh, what communities of the CNCF you're involved with. For example, I'm a contributor to Kubernetes, which is a CNCF managed project, um, and then any other activities that you do related to the CNCF, like running meetup groups or uh, other community groups, the ways that you help to lead the community and help them out. Uh, so you put all of that stuff into an application and send it off to the CNCF. And, and didn't you give a talk in Japan in Japanese? Not in Japanese. I wanted to. Oh, but, you, but you did go to Japan and gave a talk. So. I did go to Japan that, and gave I'm a sure talk. that helps I, with the ambassadorship. <laughs> yeah, I gave little uh, little tidbits of the talk in, in Japanese, which they were very amused by. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. I bet you, you know, it's, it's funny, like, you know, you may think that you're not very good at the language and even if you aren't, they still very much appreciate when you are trying. So I'm sure that was well yeah. received. 
Yeah. I, people can't see my background right now, but I have my Japanese language proficiency certification in my background. <laughs> people can't see my background either, but I don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do have a background with the Japanese. <laughs> These are my um, brown belts. <laughs> Man, I feel like I have not accomplished anything this year. <laughs> yeah. Got to work on that background. Yes. Oh, right. My let's see. My background is. Uh, oh yeah, I've got like this uh, this ego waffle thing. Yeah, that's all. Your background is perfect for podcasting, is what I'm hearing. Oh yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, also with us today, Jonathan Rippy's here. So Jonathan Rippy is at NetApp. What do you do here, and how do we reach you? Hey, Justin. Um, yep, I'm a developer on the uh, Astra Trident team. Um, I'm on Twitter, JK Rippy. It's my Twitter handle. I'm also on the pub. Um, and yep. And those are those two probably best places to reach me. And I highly recommend following Kazalyn Fields on Twitter. If you would like to have real time live tweets of all these conferences, she's really great about posting, um, posting them and, and, and live updating them. I've sat next to her in conferences and it's, it's, uh, she, she does a really great job. So highly recommend following Kazalyn. All right. Excellent. So we'll get into those details a little bit later about conferences and keynotes and that sort of thing. Um, but first, I'd like to just talk about Kubernetes to start with. So Kaslin, um, give me your Kubernetes spiel. One way that I like to explain Kubernetes to kind of give a basic overview of uh, what it is, at least to start out with, is uh, I have this analogy where I like to talk about containers as cookies, <laughs> which I've worked with Ruby on in the past. He's awesome. Uh, Rippy, by the way, was the first person to explain containers to me and is the reason that I am here right now. So he is a fantastic mentor and awesome, and I will always sing his praises. <laughs> Thanks, Kaza. You're awesome, too. <laughs> That's why I'm super awesome. here. I wanted you guys to yeah. like, just like pat each other on the backs. and Yeah. Thanks, Justin. I'm, this is great. You have to get that out of the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this analogy where I explain uh, containers as cookies, and the reason... There are several reasons that I like to do that, but one of them is that nobody really cares about containers. Terrible things to say. Oh, no. But <laughs> everybody really cares about running their apps. Containers are just a means to get to running your apps. So uh, in that way, your apps are kind of like the chocolate chips in a chocolate chip cookie because they're the best part. They're really the only thing you care about. <laughs> you just have to tie everything else in with them. All of the dependencies that your app has, uh, you need to bake all of that together into a convenient portable package. So that's kind of what containers do for you. So then we start talking about Kubernetes. How does that relate to containers? And by using this analogy, I kind of like to think about Kubernetes as like a, a global cookie business because Kubernetes is about running containers at scale. So uh, if you think about the logistics of running a business where you have to distribute cookies at scale, it's not about where the cookies are made, it's about getting the cookies to their destinations. So it's about getting your apps to the people who need them. Um, so Kubernetes gives you a method to deploy your applications across a cluster of machines. So uh, you have to worry a little bit less about the infrastructure itself. It kind of abstracts that layer away a little bit uh, so that you can worry more about making sure that your apps are running in a way that you need them to, that you have enough uh, capacity for them and all of that kind of thing. So it's about running containers at scale. Could this That's analogy also be extended to Lucky Charms <laughs> in the market? <laughs> Could it be? Uh, probably. There's probably some way you could work that in. <laughs> like the marshmallows could be your apps. 
Yeah. And like all those boring like cereal pieces, those are, you know, that's the container. Who cares? Yeah. And then well, distribution of the cereal. And then the leprechaun kind of like is, is like the god of all the things. <laughs> I guess he's like it's the, the API master. server. There's yeah. something yeah, the weird master. about the plane here. <laughs> that well, the doesn't co- work. Co- well, cookies and Lucky Charms both come in boxes. Oh. <laughs> so you can use the boxes, the, the container that contains the, the treats, the delicious app treats. The pod. I talk pod, about, exactly. um, yeah, when I explain Kubernetes with this analogy, I'll talk about you can put one or more cookies into a little like package. <laughs> like You can buy a package of one or more cookies, and that's like a pod in Kubernetes because Kubernetes doesn't think about containers directly. It thinks about this kind of pod wrapper that it puts around your containers. Um, anyway, so yeah, there's something there. <laughs> Every time like I, I eat a cookie from now on and I, uh, the crunching, I'll just hear a cube cuddle, cube cuddle. Yes. <laughs> or cube control, whichever yeah, you prefer to pronounce it at. How's that pronounced? <laughs> or cube ectal? It's, it's GIF, yes. or, GIF or GIF? Cube CTL? Cube CTL. So there's a lot. Yeah. All right, cool. So that's Kubernetes. Um, so let's talk about KubeCon because that's basically like the conference to go to if you're interested in this sort of thing. So uh, Kaslin did the live tweeting of the KubeCons. Um, so Kaslin, you know, give, give us your your overall view of what all that was about and the things that you took away from it. Yeah. So KubeCon, KubeCon Cloud Native Con, it's technically like it's got this combo name of both. Uh, the focus on Kubernetes as well as general cloud native open source software. It's run by the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, um, which is a nonprofit that helps to manage a lot of cloud native focused open source projects, including Kubernetes. Uh, so this conference has been going on for a number of years now. And uh, over the pandemic, of course, it's been virtual. So this one uh, that just happened in October of 2021 was very exciting because it was the first one uh, that we've had since the pandemic where there was an in-person component. It was a hybrid event where some people were in person in LA and some folks were virtual uh, watching the sessions online. Uh, it was quite the feat of of conference planning to make that work, but they did. <laughs> so it's a great conference for learning about Kubernetes as well as the ecosystem around Kubernetes and what it means to run applications in the cloud. And uh, it's a lot of folks there are new. So if this stuff is new to you, don't feel intimidated. Definitely check out some of the sessions from KubeCon. Uh, It usually has pretty close to 50% of of attendees being new to the topic. So uh, you'll find good content there. There's a one-on-one track where you can learn uh, learn things that are at a 101 level if you're new to all of it. Of course, there are also deeper dives because it's a great conference for the community that builds these things to get together and talk about what they're working on. So it kind of has all of the stuff you need to know in one place. What about you, Rippy? Um, did, you, did you attend virtually? And if so, what was interesting to you? Um, it was, I actually had a conflict and wasn't able to attend this year. So, uh, but the most interesting thing to me, to me this year was Kaslin's uh, keynote, which I watched. So I did manage to catch that. I did manage to catch that as well. I even yeah. asked Kaslin, I was like, hey, did you memorize that? Or did you read from a prompter? She's like, oh, I totally memorized it. No, she didn't. She read from a prompter, but it was very good because it's like, hey, yeah. like you can't even tell. Yeah. 
Thanks. So, so <laughs> let, let's talk about that keynote. Um, what, what was it about? Like, what, what, you know, for people who haven't seen it, might be interested in seeing it, and it's out there. We can put it in the link in the blog. But what was it about? What were you trying to cover in that keynote? Yeah. So I had five minutes, and I decided for some some mad reason to try to <laughs> explain um, the concept of multi-cluster in Kubernetes in five minutes and what the community is doing to enable multi-cluster use cases. So what multi-cluster is, if you've ever started to use Kubernetes in the past, ever looked into it, um, you might have noticed that Kubernetes treats everything as if the cluster is the whole universe. One Kubernetes cluster contains all of the things and it doesn't need to know anything about anything outside of it. Um, but that's not the reality for a lot of users. A lot of users end up having multiple clusters for all sorts of reasons, which I go over in the talk. And then they want to deploy their applications with this nice abstraction layer I was talking about across all of these clusters instead of just the one. So then how do you manage these multiple clusters and how do you deploy your applications across them is the problem that we're trying to solve. So then in the talk, I, I go over what uh, SIG multi-cluster and SIG networking are doing. So SIG stands for Special Interest Group, and these are groups within the Kubernetes Open Source Project that are focusing on specific areas. So SIG multi-cluster has this new API called Multi-Cluster Services, Multi-Cluster Services API. Um, and it's a standard that they're developing, which will have to be implemented by whatever infrastructure provider you're using or maybe a service mesh. Um, so Kubernetes itself doesn't implement the API, but uh, it gives a way for you to um, kind of spread your services across your various clusters. It gives a function for you to kind of uh, export and import your services across clusters so that every cluster knows what's going on in the other clusters. So that's how they're addressing that part. But then for networking, uh, SIG networking has gateway API, which is another gateway or another API implementation um, or API standard that then you'll have to get implementations from uh, your infrastructure providers or service meshes or what have you. Um, but what it gives you is a better way for Kubernetes to interact with the networking uh, that's involved because Kubernetes involves a lot of networking, especially when you're talking about things across clusters. So by combining the capabilities of the Gateway API, where it gives you better control over your networking infrastructure and better control over your ingress, the traffic coming into your services, you can then kind of use Gateway API to create this concept of multi-cluster ingress, where you use Gateway API to direct traffic to the exported and imported services. And then you basically have this way to uh, kind of have traffic load balanced across all of your multiple clusters. So it's a pretty cool solution. <laughs> and so that's what I was trying to go over in five minutes, which is pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, I think you did a good job of it. I mean, you know, you don't need to go into excruciating detail to get the point across, right? You show examples and you show why people might need these things and how they can interact with them. Yeah, exactly. And how to get involved if you are interested in those types of solutions. It is open source software. So if you wanted to work on those solutions, SIG Multicluster and SIG Networking are always happy to have new folks. So on that note, does Google have anything specifically that can leverage these APIs and handle multi-cluster uh, technologies? Is, is there anything that they have today? 
Yeah, so I mentioned that multi-cluster services and gateway API are both uh, standards that then have to be implemented. So Google Cloud has implemented both of these. And so we have this concept of multi-cluster ingress that I described earlier. There's some really nice documentation in our Google Cloud docs that goes over what multi-cluster ingress is and kind of how we do it using the Gateway API and multi-cluster services, and then how you can use it yourself in Google Kubernetes engine clusters. So yeah, we're basically doing those things. Excellent. And, and Jonathan, do, does NetApp have anything that can leverage APIs like that? Well, Trident leverages APIs, but uh, from a storage perspective, if you were a NetApp customer and you were wanting to consume some of these services uh, Kazan was describing, as a NetApp customer, you're using storage. So you would use the uh, the Google our Google offering for provisioning storage, our GCP offering for um, our, our on-tap backend. Then the cluster that you spun up, you would be able to attach and then and use that storage. So we also have, um, see the CSI spec, which is the container storage interface spec specification in Kubernetes for how you provision and use storage. One of the, one of the uh, features that's there is a concept of topology. So you would want to use the topology features to make sure that the nodes that are trying to provision the storage would be provisioning the correct um, storage for, for the, for the nodes that they're, that they're within. So you wouldn't want to have, unless you want to incur the extra costs from, from provisioning storage across zones or whatever. But um, yeah, so the, the, the pieces are there. Uh, they should be there to be able to consume the, the services Kazlin's describing. I, I haven't personally done anything with multi-cluster yet, but I am excited about the idea and the concept. And uh, I need to talk when there's a really good detail about this, you know, for, um, you know, tenancy reasons and, you know, um, secu security reasons. There's all sorts of reasons people might want to run multi-cluster. And then ONTAP has, you know, our, our, in our features, we have features that provide, but, you know, help with tenancy and help with security as well. So Kaslin, you know, Rippy kind of hinted at some things, some reasons why you might want to run a multi-cluster. Can, can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So if you watch my talk or check out my blog on this topic, <laughs> I, I go over these things in more detail <laughs> with beautiful illustrations, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Kaslin drew them all. She did. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> they're really good. They're really good. Especially the goose. The goose, the goose is my favorite. Is great. I you love need it to make so a much. Shirt. You need to make a shirt really of the goose so I can buy the goose. It's the world so, goose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No world the turtles, is... world goose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. The goose is one of my illustrations describing one of the reasons that you might do multi-cluster. So I have three points that I, I point to in my talk. The first one is geography or uh, hybrid environments. So if you're running applications in Europe and Asia... <laughs> in Japan, somewhere like those very disparate regions, you're probably going to want to run them on hardware in each of those regions, probably for latency reasons, all sorts of other reasons. So that means that you're, you'll probably need to have a Kubernetes cluster in each of those regions if you want to run your apps in Kubernetes. So boom, there you go. Now you've got multiple clusters. And if you're running in multiple environments, say you're running in Google Cloud and on-prem or in AWS or Azure, where have you, then you're going to have separate clusters in each of those environments. So once again, there you have multiple clusters. Then uh, the second reason that I mentioned, which I think is a really interesting one, is actually billing models. <laughs> so a lot of organizations, you'll have teams that report to different cost centers, right? So a lot of organizations end up creating clusters to better match their billing models. So 
if one team reports to this cost center and a different team reports to a different cost center, you want to make sure that those costs are going to the right places so that you can track how much you actually need to spend for those teams to do their work. And it's a little easier to do that if you split up the clusters. So some organizations do it that way. Not every organization maybe, but it's an option. Some do. And then the last one, of course, was our goose. <laughs> so if you're familiar with Untitled Goose Game, or if you've seen Ian Coldwater's tweets about Kubernetes and security, uh, the goose is often used to represent just chaos <laughs> in your technical environments and your Kubernetes environments. Um, so I used that illustration to describe our security point here of maybe you have security and compliance reasons why you might need separate Kubernetes clusters. So those are the three big reasons that I pointed out in my talk why you might have multiple clusters. I took a little bit of issue with the goose because he looked very friendly. <laughs> the, the red laser eyes? Look with friendly. the red laser eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it was like a Bitcoin goose, right? But... Um, <laughs> But like, you know, we all know geese are jerks. I mean, you know, so, but, you know so like it looked like he was hugging the world, but he was really just, it was mine. It was right? the Kubernetes logo. He was stealing like the Kubernetes. The world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Enough of that. Um, so, so um, Kaslin, you know, when you start thinking about things like uh, provisioning, you know, CSIs and that sort of thing, you know, how do you deal with those you know scenarios like when you're when you're looking at you know pvs's and that sort of thing like what is your take on how that should all be managed yeah so uh pvcs oh, are PVCs, private excuse me i think private volume or uh, persistent volume claim persistent volume claim thank yeah, you yes. yes no problem <laughs> too many acronyms yeah TLAs. Many acronyms. tlas three letter <laughs> acronyms sorry I'll yeah stop. <laughs> we have a lot of those. Yes. Uh, so persistent volumes and persistent volume claims in Kubernetes are a concept that they created to help deal with storage. This is something I was thinking about while Rippy was talking and uh, I'm excited to talk about. It's one of my favorite areas to look into with Kubernetes is this problem of persistent storage. Because if you've heard about containers before and you've heard about Kubernetes before, you might have heard them in the same breath as microservices, um, which are often stateless applications, things that can kind of spin up and do their job and then spin back down. And then maybe you get rid of those things so that you're not using the resources while you're not running them, that kind of thing. But if you want to run, say, a database in Kubernetes, can you do that? What does that look like? What are the challenges associated with it? And this is actually becoming more and more common. I've been surprised recently at some of the surveys that have come out of users of Kubernetes saying that they're running a lot of stateful applications, including databases on Kubernetes. So the way that you do that is you have to have some kind of solution for your persistent storage. And persistent volume is the um, object in Kubernetes that Kubernetes uses to keep track of storage volumes. Uh, so those are very important if you want to learn how to do persistent storage in Kubernetes. And like Rippy said, NetApp has some cool solutions here with helping you Kind of the problem here is that Kubernetes is a distributed system, right? And when we're talking about multi-cluster, it's getting even more distributed. So if your apps can be anywhere, then where is your data? So it's it's interesting with containers. When I first started, you know, looking at them and hearing about them, it, it was very much like, oh, these are not VMs. These are not VMs. These are not workstations, right? But it's almost like mm -hmm. this, like, there's this push, this drive 
to make everything that we use more like what we're used to, like a server or a workstation, right? So now we have things that we have to worry about, like persistent storage and backing up and you know restoring and that sort of thing. Because I don't know if it's because people haven't figured out how to evolve past that, or if it's just it's always going to be that way. So, Rippy, with you know what you're working on, what options does NetApp provide for things like persistent volumes and, and backups and restores? Yeah, so Astra Trident is the is the name of the project that I work on, and that's that's the that's that's the tool we that you know um, we use. It's open source. You can get it on GitHub. Um, and it's, it's supported. You can go in the. We have a, a site called a pub. You can you can um, you can communicate with other users and some of the developers there. You can also you know get support through the NetApp support site for um, Trident. And as Kazan was describing, um, you know when you have an application that needs um, storage. Uh, and you're using NetApp storage, you can create a persistent volume claim, which is the way you say, I, I'm an application developer and I would like to have some storage for my database, please. So you submit a PVC request, a PVC claim, and then Trident will notice that PVC request and it will dynamically provision storage for you as a persistent volume. And the Kubernetes job is to glue that all together. And through the CSI, which I mentioned before, through the container storage interface, it will um, Kubernetes will ask us to provision the storage, and then it will ask us to attach the storage. Um, you can also do snapshots and clones with this as well. As Kubernetes has evolved and advanced the CSI spec, you know we've been there implementing all those features. Uh, we were actually, uh, I believe, the very first dynamic storage provisioner in the Kubernetes space. So we were there early days, and we could do all some. We could do all this, a lot of this stuff before it was even a standard. So then, as the standard has evolved, and you know, we have people on those committees, you know, attending those meetings and helping with the standards process. Um, you know, as the as CSI has grown, you know, we we were able to add those features as well, like topology and storage and snapshots and clones. So all the all those features that you use with your own test system now, you can you can use with Astronet. And we have many many um, different kinds of backends. So we support we have ONTAP backends, we have cloud backends, uh, you know, for our GCP. Uh, offering specifically for Google, but we also have for, for Amazon or Microsoft, you know, all the cloud volumes uh, options you can provision with those. You, we have a, an ONTAP NAS driver, an ONTAP NAS economy driver, which, which provisions with QTrees. We have a SAN driver, we have a SAN economy driver. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff. You can go on the uh, on our docs page and read read all about that um, in, more, in, in a lot more detail. But This is not the first um, time uh, Rippy told me to read the docs, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in a good way, not a bad way. He's always really <laughs> nice about it. Like he's like, "Hey, yeah, here's this cool link. Go read it, please." We have great, sir. Yeah, we we have great tech writers and great TMEs on the team that that um, have written all this great documentation. So it's it's really good. Nothing more valuable than good docs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Only if you use them. Yeah. <laughs> Only if you read them, Justin. Oh, sorry. What's knowing is half the battle. Yes. What's the other half? I don't know. I have no idea. They never. They never <laughs> clarified that. <laughs> they never cl- clarified. Undefined. <laughs> Something Rippy said is really interesting to me, which is, I feel like a lot of users, as they start to explore this Kubernetes space, I, I think it's a little difficult for a lot of people to wrap their head around separating your app and its functions and the things that it does from the way that you think about storage. Because in the past, you haven't had to do that as much (laughs) as now with Kubernetes, which is really all about running apps. And like I said, if your apps can run anywhere, where is your data? So this becomes a very kind of separated thing that you 
think about and you have to think about creating these persistent volumes for any apps that require storage. You have to think about a database as something that has both a component that does things, an app, and storage, which normally you just kind of think of it as one thing, right? Um, but in Kubernetes, you have to think about running the app itself as well as creating storage for that app to use, uh, which I think is difficult for a lot of folks to wrap their heads around. So Kaslin, a lot of people want to use Kubernetes. They're very adamant about using Kubernetes. Talk me out of it. Like, why wouldn't I want to use Kubernetes? When, is it, when does it not make sense? <laughs> talk you out of it. Talk me out of it. Because I mean, yeah, I think, there are a lot of times it, it doesn't make sense. It, it highlights not just, you know, <laughs> when you'd use it, but also when you wouldn't, right? So you need, we really need to understand when Absolutely. it's right and when it's wrong. This is a really tough thing, especially when you're learning Kubernetes. It's really hard to find a use case for Kubernetes that makes sense at a learning scale, honestly. Because like I said, Kubernetes is all about that uh, cookie business at scale. It's about container orchestration at a large scale. So when you're talking about anything at a smaller scale, at a, like an individual person scale, it's rare that Kubernetes makes sense in those use cases. <laughs> a great example that I always like to point to is I wanted to run my website, caslin.rocks, and I wanted to figure out how to run it myself because course, I want to do something the hard way first. I don't know. It's, it's common engineering uh, predicament, I think. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out how to do that. And it took me no time at all to get WordPress running in a container because WordPress offers a container image where you can just spin up WordPress and boom, there you go. But that's not on the internet yet. And I also wanted to figure out how it would work in Kubernetes. So WordPress also has a storage component. <laughs> you have to figure out where the WordPress application stores things and make sure you have a persistent volume ready for that. Um, and then you can run the application piece of WordPress. So it all works very nicely within Kubernetes. And it's really fantastic if you're like a, uh, a provider who is providing a bunch of WordPress sites to other users or something like that. Kubernetes would be great at uh, running the front ends, managing the back ends, making sure all of your uh, WordPress applications are up. But if you're just running one, what additional value is Kubernetes bringing you? <laughs> it's all about orchestrating this large number of containers. And if you only need to run like one or two, it's you usually don't really need it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's a scale. But, but if, if you need to go web scale, then yeah, if you need that, to go web scale. There you go. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other use cases you want to point out, Rippy? Um, so sort of a corollary, the same thing you're saying, it's just a, uh, maybe a different, maybe a slightly different way of thinking about it. Um, the way I originally first got interested in, in, in containers, so in this whole space, was um, being able to uh, solve the problem. And it works on my machine, right? It's a classic problem with, of developers when they're trying to share code with each other. Well, you know, everyone's laptop's different. Uh, you don't know the provenance of how they set it up. You don't know, like, what version of Homebrew did they use or what version of Linux did they use or what, you know, there's, there's so many variables. So putting things in containers by itself, I think is a, it is the, it is a fundamental building block of you know Kubernetes and it's a fundamental building block of reproducibility. And I think there's value in that. Even if you don't embrace and go the whole Kubernetes path, it's valuable just to figure out how containers work and spin yourself up with containers. And then down the road, if you do go to that, to the need Kubernetes, you've already got a containerized version. So then it just becomes a question of how do I, take this container and run it in Kubernetes. So I think starting that container journey, you know, as soon as possible, in my opinion, is 
is a very uh, good thing to do to help you later down the road if it does grow, if what you're doing does grow to that. But yeah, it, not, not all use cases. Like a simple, like a, there's a local um, pizza shop down the road. They're probably not going to want to have Kubernetes running in there and their uh, store to serve up their, just their store's needs. But, you know, yeah, maybe, yeah. They, maybe they become a chain and maybe they do suddenly have that need. So if they containerize, it would be easy to start licensing and having a chain of those. Yeah, I guess they'd have to kind of be like of the opinion of themselves that, hey, we're going to grow really large. But most most businesses don't start out with that mentality, right? They're like, let's make this one work and let's see where it goes. And But by that time, if you if you start to grow, you approach this problem of becoming way too big to like really retrofit. Right. And that's why I think if you start with a containerized version of whatever you're doing, just in case, you're, 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 only good things will happen. You'll, you'll, you'll have something that's easy to reproduce. You'll have something that's easy to, to, to version and pass around because you know, your, your container Docker file is very small. It's easy to, to read and see what you've done. So you would set yourself up for success where, where if you just spun up a VM and just SSH'd in and did everything in the GUI, you might not remember how you set it all up later. It might be more difficult to scale if you, if you forced those, if you, became a victim of your own success, you know, started growing quickly. So Kaslin, with your site, you, you, you know, you set it up using Kubernetes and, and that sort of thing. Where are you storing all this? I'm only running that one website, right? So it doesn't make sense for me to run it in Kubernetes. So <laughs> I ended up using a hosting provider for that site, but I do periodically do the experiment. And I did it earlier this year on Twitch, actually, of how would I run this on Kubernetes? What's changed? How do I actually run a, a WordPress site on Kubernetes? Because it involves this persistent storage component that we were talking about, as well as running the application itself. I think there's a lot of interesting things about that use case. Um, so I did do that experiment earlier this year, like I said, on Twitch, where I ran a Kubernetes cluster using GKE in Google Cloud. And uh, I created some persistent volumes, just really basic, because I was just kind of doing the demo and uh, spun up WordPress and ran it on, on Kubernetes. And I showed on, on Twitch the actual website working on uh, fieldstested.rocks, I think it was. It's not up anymore because I deleted that cluster. But <laughs> uh, you can watch the whole process if you want to on those Twitch uh, recordings. From uh, You can find them on, on YouTube. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll add those links to the blog as well. I guess my point there was going to be, you know, if you've got a smaller scale, like Rippy says, you can certainly start to try to like prepare for scale, but mm, there's a yeah. cost associated, right? I mean, it costs a lot more money and time to stand up your own Kubernetes cluster, to host it in a, in a cloud provider, to pay that ingress and egress for those, for that data movement. Right. So <laughs> there's this like balance that you have to strike and, and you know, Rippy, what you know? What sort of things would you recommend for people that are trying to strike that balance? That you're know, trying to decide whether or not to spend the time and money, or to kind of have a blend of both. Yeah. So for for my own stuff, um, I have spun up. Like I go to I, uh, I've I've used DigitalOcean in the past because you know really you know pretty cheap instance. It can run Docker, and um, I, I've done a lot of my experiments with things just. Spinning things up simply in a container with, with a digital ocean droplet. Um, if I don't want to have any costs associated with it, I've also just used virtual machines locally um, to do the same thing. There's, um, there is a Docker desktop as well as, a, as something you can use, but their licensing recently changed. So um, 
you may want, you know, again, it's easy to spin up a, you know, a virtual machine, either in the cloud or on your laptop and put it there and not have any costs. So you can see if it, if, if it's something you like. So, uh, and we also, when you're, um, when you're first starting out on this journey, there's also uh, tools like Minikube, um, which are really easy ways to spin up small uh, Kubernetes clusters locally on your own laptop. So you can get a feel for that without having to go through all the hoops that would be involved in spinning up you know, tons of virtual machines, and getting them clustered together. Or <laughs> yeah, so I def I agree. There's definitely there's a <laughs> that, that you know the classic like step one, step two, step three, you know, step two question mark, step three profit. That 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 classic list of things that's <laughs> <laughs> like setting up a cluster, Kubernetes cluster. Um, there are increasingly lots of tools that make it the process simpler. And uh, you know, as Kazan was saying, the GKE is a hosted hosted version of that. And there's other there's other cloud providers also have other other hosted versions of that. So um, yeah, but again, I think just starting off with containers is your is your lowest building block is is just going to be helpful. Um, Basically, you don't need Kubernetes to get started with containers. No, yeah, you can run them on any sort of compute that you may be using. So that's a great place to start, and you can do it like Ruby said on your local laptop in the cloud, wherever you have compute resources where you'd like to run apps. You can get also on Windows. <laughs> It can run on Windows. <laughs> They're a little bit different. Uh, Windows containers are really interesting to me. Um, but Windows containers are implemented at the Windows kernel level, and Linux containers are impl implemented at the Linux kernel level. So um, they're different containers, but similar concept. <laughs> yeah, I've played a little bit with Docker on Linux, and it's you know pretty it's pretty easy to get a hold of, right? It's like you can kind of play around with it. There's plenty of containers out there that are open and free to use. You can crack open a Docker file and figure out what they're doing there. It's like, oh, I can do that. And then you can create your own and, you know, publish them. And there's lots of lots of opportunity to learn out there that doesn't cost you a thing. Yeah, it also works on Raspberry Pis. So if you happen to have one in your drawer, sitting, sitting in your drawer somewhere, you could pull that out and use it as an experiment as how, well. How did you know I had one of those that I haven't opened up? <laughs> I just guessed. <laughs> <laughs> I get Pretty about a, 80 to 90% success rate on yes, oh, having at least one Raspberry Pi in a drawer. I got this. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to set up a proxy server. And then it just yes. sat there. So, so there you go. You yep. can bust yeah. it out and run Docker on <laughs> just that. Just run Docker on it. Yeah, and then you could get two or three of them instead of cluster up. Then you're I'll good. get right on that. Yeah, <laughs> I actually went to a talk at KubeCon this time live in LA where the the speaker had brought this like science fair poster board <laughs> with the Raspberry Pis stuck on it and like labeled what each Raspberry Pi was and they ran a machine learning workload on Raspberry Pis using Kubernetes and containers uh, right there in front of us in LA. So that was pretty cool. On on nice. the poster board, like as they were attached to it, that was that was nice. That's pretty awesome. Yep, they had little red and green lights when something was running on each piece of the cluster yeah. and things like that. It's pretty nice. cool. It's like Do you happen to know if they were using the 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 Pi Compute ones, the new ones that are more optimized for CPU? Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, the speaker had all of the resources listed in the talk. I'll okay, have to send you a link I'll, I'll later. Go, I'll go look. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious because I think I thought about getting one of those to put in a drawer. I mean, not to use. <laughs> <laughs> to put in a drawer. I mean, you thought about getting one as a paperweight. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, it's a poster board. It's great. I love it. So, so Rippy, um, with Trident, what's what's new? I mean, was there anything? I understand there's a new release that came out. What what does that include? So you just had a a, a cool uh, Tech on Top podcast about um, FSX and. Uh, when it came out, Trident supported that. So Astro Trident has support as, for uh, on-tap FSX as one of the backends. And if you go in the docs, again, 
you can you can read more about that. But that was that was one of our uh, one of the bigger uh, items in our recent release. I think this is the last time we were we were on. We've had two releases, maybe because we had one in July and one in, in October, just a few uh, just last week. So we yeah we continue to have our um, our cadence that we've had in the past. Lots of bud fixes, and we we started doing uh, something new this year where we have some tech preview uh, features. So one of the one of those tech preview features that I've been working on is support for ONTAP REST APIs. So we've been adding all of the the backends that we have, ONTAP NAS, ONTAP SAN, et cetera, that that currently traditionally have used Zappy. We've added the ability for them to instead use our new REST management APIs as well. Uh, the only one we have left is the SAN economy to convert. So um, again, it's tech preview. So don't run it in production, but definitely, you know, kick the tires and let us know if it works for you. And if you're, you know, if you have any issues and uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's our uh, summary of our uh, new features. High level. Cool. High, very high and, level. Do you, yeah. do you support Google cloud? We do. We do. Hey, there you go. I didn't want to leave out <laughs> Google cloud, you know, because we have, yeah. we have, we have people watching. We do. We do. Yes. Castle's watching. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we support all of them. All the good. You know, well, Amazon, Google, all the clouds, Microsoft. Yes. All the clouds. So one thing that we talked about in all of this was how difficult it can be to learn Kubernetes and containers and figure out how all of this stuff works, how, what the use cases are, when does it make sense to use these things? So I have some training coming up, uh, December. Let me check. December 8th and 9th, <laughs> um, we're going to be hosting some free training, which I'll give you the link to that you can put in the description. I've created this kind of four-hour workshop on, <laughs> I know it's a lot, but it's broken up into one-hour segments, so it's not as bad as it sounds um, if you watch it one piece at a time. Uh, but uh, this workshop goes over kind of what Kubernetes is. It's specifically with the lens of GKE, Google Kubernetes Engine. So. Uh, but we go over general Kubernetes concepts as well. And I go through with this uh, example company of, called Uptime Flowers, and we talk about their use case and why they want to use containers and Kubernetes. And then we talk about what it takes for them to implement the system that they need. So I think it's a pretty useful tool for learning about Kubernetes and all these things. Um, so I'll make sure that we have the link to that. And if you want to learn more about GKE, I am also running a new YouTube series called GKE Essentials, which is like five-minute bites of GKE tips uh, if you use that. So there you go. And Rippy, with Trident, uh, what's, um, what's the next release coming out? Like, what are we getting there? Can't tell you that. <laughs> When's it coming out? Oh, our cadence is always the same. Or it has to this date, today, it, to today, it's always been the same. We have one, an 01, an 04, 07, and 10. <laughs> so January, April, July, and October <laughs> releases every year. So the next one should be in January, uh, but I can't tell you what's going to be in it. But um, yeah, 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 I don't expect We're definitely that. working on those, definitely working on the features. The you know, definitely working on, we're definitely working on, on, on things to go in in that time frame. The future. The future is now. All right, Kaslin, uh, Rippy, thanks so much for joining us today and telling us all about Trident as well as Google, uh, Kubernetes, Kubernetes, KubeCon, you know, all sorts of good things covered here. So Kaslin, uh, what, you know, again, how do we reach you? Definitely follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active at Kaslin Fields. Uh, if you prefer LinkedIn, you can also message me on there and follow my mailing list for my blog. 
And Rippy. Yep. Uh, Twitter, JK Rippy on there and uh, you know, on the pub. I'm on the pub as well. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Kazlin Fields of Google and Jonathan Rippey of NetApp for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.